Hello and welcome back, everybody, or welcome to the first time because we just changed our name. Uh, we are now the Ortho Talk Podcast. I changed the name from the Ortho Podcast because I didn't want to get a cease and desist letter from the already existing trademark, uh, the Ortho Podcast. So we are now the Ortho Talk Podcast or Ortho Talk Pod for short. Um, same same podcast, same content, uh, but you know, just a different name. So this week, uh, we are lucky to be joined by Dr. Chike Aiko, who is a very interesting guy, has a very interesting story. Um, obviously, with the current state of our country and society, we, we do get into the AOS statement on racial discrimination and kind of delve into that a little bit. But we also talk about some other stuff, including you know why he chose to do two fellowships. He did sports and foot and ankle and the benefits of that and how that's affecting him in his job search. And um, you know, it's a pretty interesting podcast. Um, like I said before, new new podcast name. So if you want to check us out at Twitter at OrthoTalkPod, our Gmail is going to be the same at the Ortho Podcast. Uh, and we just launched a new website. You can check us out www.orthotalkpod.com. You can find all our episodes and links over there. Find us on iTunes. Uh, If you like the show, give us five stars, leave a review. If you don't, send us an email and tell us why and see how we can improve. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Chike Aiko. Welcome back, everybody. Ortho Podcast. I don't know what number this is. Uh, What are we, five? Is this five? I think this is our 35th one. 35th podcast. What's up? It's a... It's been a long week, interesting week. Jay, you want to introduce our guest this week? Yeah, we're uh, really lucky and fortunate this week to have my friend and co-fellow, Chike Aiko. He's a foot and ankle surgeon, uh, along with me at Duke University, doing our fellowship training. And he also has a background in sports, uh, sports medicine orthopedics. He did a sports medicine fellowship last year. So welcome, Chike. You know, thanks for having me, you guys. You know, this is an awesome platform that you all have put together and you know i'm very pleased to be a part of it today so how's it going awesome. man how's, how's it going you're in north carolina yeah i'm over here at duke university can you hear me yeah i can hear you you're good yeah i'm over here at duke university with jay so you know we're both winding down things with our fellowship we only have uh, a little less than two months and then before we go out to the real world and begin uh, practicing you know foot and ankle surgery so you know with everything in regards to COVID and all of the recent changes in sort of our curriculum you know it's kind of been a whirlwind but you know things have begun to normalize and you know we're receiving some great training out here so can't ask for anything better yeah these two months oh go ahead I I heard that we were back to 85 percent of our clinical volume so I don't know if that's true or not but I've heard yeah, no, I definitely believe it. We've been we've been going pretty hard too, but we have like this tropical storm that's about to hit, so it's like everything that could be going wrong is going wrong right now. I don't know what's gonna happen. We're still having clinic on Monday, but if I get flooded out, then I'm I'm done. I'm done with 2020. I'm going home, packing my bags. <laughs> All right, Jay, where are you at this week? Where's your background? Oh, um. This is actually interesting. This this is a background of America right now. This is not one particular place. This is our country. And <laughs> I chose this background. The, you can see the fires in the sky that represents the the chaos and the of, of the current events that have been going on and just the state of things um, in our nation. And then I, I have a lighthouse there that represents the light that we're all supposed to be in this world. And so you are you are literally living in a metaphor right now. I'm living in a metaphor. <laughs> I'm also living in the current world. In the current <laughs> this is a very metaphysical background for a metaphysical time and place. So, so let's get let's get right into it then. Uh, so, this week, about six days ago, the AOS released a statement here, and I'm just going to read it to you, and I want to hear your thoughts on it. And I know Mo, you've written a piece that's now online on KevinMD.com, and it's a it's an awesome piece. So, let me read this AOS statement right quick. From May 31st, 2020, anyone who has seen the graphic video of George Floyd being pinned down and suffocated by a Minneapolis police officer cannot help but be horrified. There is no justification for this violence. 
This incident follows the recent shooting of Ahmad Arbery as he was jogging through a Georgia neighborhood in the case of Christian Cooper, who was wrongly accused of threatening a woman while he was bird watching in New York City. The detrimental effects these incidents have, have on our society, and especially on black communities, should not and cannot be underestimated. The Academy respects the lives of every person, regardless of race, religion, gender, creed, or sexual orientation, and we strongly condemn, condemn what has recently occurred. To our Academy members of color, we stand with you. Every human life matters to us. As the poet John Don, I think that's his name, wrote, any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. We believe that although words are important, deeds matter most. I have always believed that our academy and its leadership ought to look more like the population we serve. This is reflected in one of the three goals of our strategic plan to evolve the culture and governance of AOS's board and volunteer structure to become more strategic, innovative, and diverse. A more diverse academy will lead to better care for our patients, including those of color. Your academy will, will respond to these episodes by demonstrating the very best of human nature and compassion, values we continue to uphold as we face our future together. All right, so that's the statement. What do you think, Mo? Well, I think, first of all, just making a statement is a statement in itself, right? Like, like the, nobody has ever, especially in orthopedics, nobody wants to speak up. Nobody wants to say anything. No, like how many, how many years of police brutality and, you know, social injustice have gone on and nobody has said anything, right? Like as doctors, we just kind of sit back, let everything happen and behind us. And we kind of put ourselves above social injustice and social inequality because we see ourselves and obviously I'm generalizing here, but, you know, as a profession, we see ourselves taking care of all sorts of people, no matter what their social status is, no matter what the color of their skin is or their gender preference or sexual orientation, you know, whatever. We take care of them the same or we tell ourselves that we take care of the same. If you look at the literature, we don't, right? Like we don't take care of people equally. We have our own biases and we have our own implicit biases against people. And we don't really acknowledge it because we kind of live in this ideal world. So we just putting out a statement, I think for the AOS was a big step. Now, there's a lot of problems with the statement, right? There's a lot of good there, but there's a lot of problems with it. I mean, at least they didn't quote Martin Luther King like everyone else is doing. I mean, that would have been the easiest thing. At least they found some poet and quoted that. Um, but from my standpoint, yeah, you know, they talk about how they're trying to get more minorities into leadership. And uh, I, it's a good, I think it's a good notion. And it's a good, good thing to want. But does that fix anything? Honestly, like, I mean, I'm not talking about socially, like obviously a bunch of doctors aren't going to fix social injustice really, but we still have a voice and we could put it out there and we can lead by example. So are we are putting a lot of minorities into, into the AOS leadership? Is, is that going to fix anything for me? Not really. I, I see that more verging on the verging on borderline tokenism and filling quotas. That's the way I see it. And you know, it, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be striving to that. I think it's a good step, but it's not all the way there. I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, no, you know, Saj, I think you made some valid points. You know, the academy, you know, much like many other organizations recently have put out these statements on these recent incidences of police brutality, and you hit it on the nail, you know, it is a great gesture, I think it's a step forward in the right direction in being able to acknowledge the fact that there are injustices and inequalities in this country. But these are things that we've known for several decades, several centuries. Um, and, you know, why does it have to take, you know, people dying innocently for this to happen, you know? You know, even a bigger issue than this is, you know, the microaggression that occurred, that injustices, that occurred to, you know, the minority people here in this country. And there are oftentimes points where people in the orthopedic community or in the job area can speak up on things and they see if their colleagues are being treated unfair, unfairly and they don't. Um, so I still think we still have a lot of room for improvement. 
in regards to the academy statement, you know, again, I think it's a great step in the right direction for what comes next. You know, what's going to be the follow-up action behind the words or the statements that are being made? You know, they've now made a pledge to try to improve uh, minority representation in orthopedics, and especially in leadership. I actually think that's great um, because, as we all know, the current representation is, um, you know, majority uh, white. Um, and although they make a great number of the orthopedic surgeons, they don't represent the entire population. So without that diversity from leadership, actual changes I don't think will occur. So I think there is some benefit in having more minorities in leadership positions. But again, that's just one facet in the change that needs to occur throughout this country. But again, I just want to see what the next steps are going to be taken from the academy after making this position statement. I think those are great points by, by both of you guys. Um, so here's, here's my thoughts, at least. I think, I think something needed to be said. The way things are going, there's not, people can't take the middle ground anymore. It used to be, you know, I myself, I'm not a very politically inclined person and I always try to see both sides of every argument. And, I'm, you know, as a result, I never really took strong positions on, on very much of anything in general. But for something like this, there's, there's, not, there's not really a two sides. There's the racist side and there's the, the non-racist side. And that's just putting it bluntly. So it's not, there's no real middle ground. You can't say, well, you know, both sides are, you know, you could be racist and not racist. That doesn't make sense. So this is as black and white of an issue as I've seen in my short lifetime. And I think for the Academy to put something out there to officially say we are on this side, I think that means a lot. And I do agree that it's, it's a first step. It's not, it doesn't have all the solutions. It doesn't have an outline of what they're going to do, but I'm really glad they made this step. And I'm glad that, you know, hopefully we'll see some, some good come out of it. Um, so a couple of things, Chica, I want to, I want to ask you what, what is a microaggression for people that may be new to this kind of, uh, to these terms, what's a microaggression. And then after that, let's, let's start talking about how maybe we can. Yeah. Make yeah. So, you know, in speaking about systemic racism, I think that's kind of what we're talking about. It's basically a set of policies that are put in place to marginalize a certain group of people, um, whether it's by race, by gender, by different belief systems, or by being an immigrant. You know, there are systemic things that are put in place in this country so that it is more difficult for people outside of the majority group to secede. So in that bucket of systemic racism, you have two forms of implement, you know, implementation. Uh, the first form is the overt racism that maybe the folks in America as a whole are more aware of. You know, these are the things that we read in our history books where you hear about the lynchings, uh, you know, you hear about Jim Crow segregation. Um, these are things that are overt, they're visceral, they elicit strong emotions and there's something that you really can see and put your finger on. Now what's happened, in my opinion, over the years is that there has been a belief that racism doesn't exist. Um, and especially more recently with the president of you know, Barack Obama, you know, people feel that, oh, now that because there was uh, African-American president that racism is completely eradicated and that's not true so now we've sort of entered the age of microaggressions in regards to racism where it's more of the covert actions it's more of the um you know the issues where people don't really say things but they hint at things instead you know instead of you know, calling someone the N-word or calling someone by some derogatory term, they'll make a slight comment. You know, they'll say, oh, you're smart for a 
black person or, you know, you're smart for this kind of group, you know, things that are, are racist when you really think about it, but doesn't really bring about that visceral response initially. So although the action is, it seems to be small and can be marginalized, I think that these things occur very frequently um, and depending on kind of your own life's experience. And I think over time, these things build up and, you know, they are, hurt, you know, hurtful things that are done and are done maybe purposely, maybe not purposely, you know, and that's the interesting thing. I think some people don't understand that certain actions that are being done are hurtful to people. And those people need to be educated on that. And I think there are people that know exactly what they are doing and are doing it maliciously and also should be called out for things. Um, you know, there's just multitude of things that can occur, you know, police pulling you over, you know, for unfounded reasons. You know, those are microaggressions. You know, again, you're not being lynched, you're not being segregated, and it's not something that is very tangible, but still it comes from the same root of systemic racism. And that's what I define as microaggression. You yeah, mean, you brought up a, a good point there that I think is part of the solution to this. And you, you talked about calling people out. And I think overall, just an increased sense of communication between everyone and, you know, being, being allowed to tell someone something they said is offensive or, you know, is, is not right. I think that's important. And I don't think we have that fully right now because you're scared to piss people off and you're scared to, you know, what they might say and they might get defensive. But if you, I mean, if you look at it at, at our roots, we all have biases, right? Every, every single one of us minority or not have biases towards someone or something. And we, we all probably have biases that we don't really know or think are biases. And it takes someone calling, calling us out on it for us to realize and learn like, Hey, I probably don't think this is that bad, but you know, they, this person might find it offensive or they might not be okay with it. And that's fine. Like we can respect other people's, uh, I, I, we respect the way other people want to be treated and still be ourselves. At least that's the way I feel. Um, I know uh, some other people would call it a pretty slippery slope. Like what, you know, all the, a lot of it, they say, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm just joking about it. I'm not really, you know, taking it seriously you know, they, they get defensive and they don't want to be, they don't want to be racist. They don't want to be the one that gets called out. So I, it's a fine line. And I think it's something that we as a society, especially as a profession are still trying to figure out. Yeah, I, I agree completely with both of you guys. One thing that I've, that I think is part of the solution, basically kind of what you guys were saying, there are really two types of racism. There's, there's the outright type where you're, you know you're racist and you, you don't apologize for it and that's the way you act. And I think hopefully the vast majority of Americans and people in our profession can, can recognize that that's wrong. And then the other type of racist person is literally everybody else in the, in the nation, in the world. Like you said, Mo, we all have our, our biases. And I think, I hope that one thing that comes out of all this is we start recognizing these biases within ourselves and maybe we, we start policing ourselves a little better and that, that in itself would be a big change. Yeah, I think you're right, man. Like, I, I don't know what the final answer is. Like, I don't know what the finish line is on this. What do you, what do you guys think? What do you think is the, when do we say it's okay? When do we say we're good? Everything's fine. Like, what, is there even a finish line to this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, you bring up a good point. Um, I don't think there's a such thing as a finish line when it comes to this. I think these issues of systemic racism are a continuing work of progress. Um, you know, it took 400, 500 years, at least within this country, to build this level of systemic racism. So you would imagine it would take similarly long or if not longer to undo the, in the, you know, the biases and the systems that are currently in place. Um, so I don't think you can say, oh, 10 years from now, we hit this benchmark and, you know, 
we're done with addressing the issues of racism in this country because again racism is something that is taught from a young age and the people that have learned racism when they're kids will teach it on to their kids unless they're awoken and unless they're aware that the things that they were taught are wrong so i think this is going to continue to be a work in progress and i don't think this is that is a fact that people should be disheartened by i think everything that can be done to make this country a more accepting place for all groups of people from all walks of life is key and i think you have to keep that in mind when we go out and we try to be good stewards and really try to educate you know the people that aren't as aware of the issues of this country how how vocal have y'all been in the past with regards to like things that you perceived as slights based on your status of your thing? Because I know I, I have not been vocal at all. I usually just eat it, swallow it, keep it internalized, yeah. move on. Right. Is yeah. That- no. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it depends on the situation in the setting. You know, I think when it comes to, you know, maybe colleagues, friends, maybe, you know, in high school, college, you know, I think, at least for me, I felt more empowered to say something. Um, Now, not to say I would always do it, but if it was something that I felt was wrong, I would say something right then and there. I think, interestingly, when you go through the workplace, at least for me, that changes some because you have this fear of saying the wrong thing or pissing someone off to the point where it affects your career. I think that's a common fear among minority, you know, trainees who go through programs and maybe they've experienced some racism and they don't know how to address it. They don't know who to speak to. They don't know what are the appropriate avenues and it's something that can be debilitating so i i think it does really depend on the situation um and i agree i mean i can't say that i'm the most vocal person either um in many instances in you know my own training and in some of the other areas of my life but i think you know now that we're awoken and aware of kind of the wrongs that are going on and because of the fact that those lights are being shone, shown currently, you know, we have to do, do so, you know, and we all can do a better job of speaking up and trying to make the public and other colleagues aware of the wrong, so. What advice would you give med students and residents that see that? Like, it, it's, you're right, it could be career suicide to be labeled as that resident or that medical student that's race baiting and playing the race card and you know i I, if someone asked me that like what do i do i honestly i don't i don't know if i'd say you need to speak up because i don't think we're there yet as a profession or as a society i think you have to know who you're talking to and you have to know how they're going to interpret it and you got to be careful like self-preservation has to come first at some point and maybe maybe I'm wrong for that. Maybe I'm perpetuating it. Um, I I think the change has to come from the top down in this instance. And I think like like we said before, having the academy put out a statement like that, condemning it and condemning the problems. I mean, I, I think they could have gone further, but I, I think what they did was a start, like we said before. Um, but I think it has to come from the top down, and it starts with the academy, and then goes on to department chairs and program directors and you know they have to make it clear that there's no place for this anymore and you know all the little all the little jokes that you have amongst you know residents and you know setting up schedules and stuff like that like I've heard people tell me that you know when when they get the advice for incoming students that there's just filled with racist and sexist jokes and stuff and you know they don't want to say anything because they don't want to be that person it has to come from the top down. Otherwise, I don't think you could expect the oppressed to speak up safely and do it openly. Yeah, I agree. We've talked about this before, whereas as the junior resident and as a student, you don't, you don't feel like you're in that position to stand up for yourself. And pretty much everything we've talked about so far is really tied in together. 
the AOS statement hopefully makes people feel more comfortable about speaking up for other people. In addition, we've talked about diversity and leadership of diversity, and hopefully that helps as well. So, so I agree with you. I don't, I don't know if we're quite there yet where we can encourage people who are not in power positions to speak up for themselves without hurting themselves. But maybe, hopefully, we can help be a part of that, that change. Um, the other thing, too, you know, systemic racism and discrimination is, it can be so subtle, too. It's not always just someone made a joke about this or that, or, you know, it's actually woven into the fabric of the culture sometimes. And what I mean by that, I'll give you an example. Uh, Mo, you know this example really well. Um, so there was a resident who, for mainly cultural reasons, was was more or less driven out of the program. Um, the culture in orthopedics, it's one of, you have to have a lot of bravado sometimes. You have to be able to speak up for yourself and, and fit in. And I think those are all good. You know, fitting in is great. Having a lot of confidence is great. Um, those are all good things. But really what makes a surgeon a good surgeon and a, a resident a good resident, it has very little to do with how you act culturally. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to fit into this stereotypical orthopedic culture to be a good surgeon. And just because you don't fit in 100% doesn't mean that you shouldn't be able to graduate. And Mo, you, you, know, you know who I'm talking about. Um, this guy, he did not fit the culture. I thought he was a hard worker. I thought he was smart. Um, unfortunately, he was an easy target for bullying uh, because he didn't fit into the culture. And as a result, he never had the support of, of the staff, of the faculty, and he never developed the confidence that he needed to progress in his surgical skills. And, and he didn't make it. So even that kind of a thing is built into our institution. And that's not, that's even less obvious than a racial joke. That's literally woven into the culture of orthopedics. And I think there's no place for that. Yeah, that's, um, you know, it's a good point. I, uh, that, that kind of brings up this whole idea of where's the line between being a bad resident and being a bad doctor and starting from a different starting line, right? Like that's a whole, that's a whole thing with systemic racism. And it, you know, it's not, it's usually not overt, especially in medicine It's usually not overt anymore, but we, we need to do a better job of realizing that not everyone starts at the same starting line, right? Some people, a lot of people have everyone, everyone has different paths to becoming a doctor. Some people have it easy. Some people don't. And sometimes we don't take that into account when we judge the, the merit of what a resident or even if even an attending is doing right. And, uh, you know, obviously there, there's a line between that and being an unsafe surgeon, being lazy, not being hardworking enough to cut it in medicine. And that line blurs, I think a little too often now. And we don't, we don't do a good enough job of, of defining that line if it can even be defined. Yeah, no, it's, you know, it's, that's, again, a tough thing to really grapple with. Again, there's this overt culture in orthopedic surgeons in residencies that they want people that fit a certain mold. And I don't know how many times you all have gone in on interviews or, you know, at the end of the interview sessions, you all review the candidates and a lot of subjective biases start popping up. It's oh, for very sure. interesting to hear the reasons why people don't want someone at the program. You know, I've heard things like, oh, this person spoke up, you know, asked me a question. They didn't know when to shut up, you know, just very bizarre things. Or, you know, when they advocate for someone, it's like, oh, that's a great guy. It's like no merit to it. It's just that, that's I, what it is. A great guy. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. He's a good dude. And then that's, that's it. General description. No that is a good dude. We, we should change the name of this podcast. Like, what does that mean? What is, it what doesn't mean good, anything. He's a good dude. He's we all we all know good dudes. That's the thing. We yeah. all know good dudes. <laughs> we don't know what they do or how they become good dudes, but there, there are some people who just by the color of their skin and what they do, they're good dudes. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, man. Um, 
yeah, I, I, I didn't get to sit in on many of those meetings. Just that, that wasn't the way our residency was run. But, uh, you know, just amongst residents, we there'd be times where, you know, people that I personally like thought was were lazy or like just, you know, not not that great of a medical student. And then someone else would be like, yeah, he's, he's just a good dude. He's a good, he's a good guy. He's, he's a good, good guy. Well, okay. Yeah. Hey, cool. <laughs> like, like why? Like, cause, because, exactly. like, is there, yeah. Is there anything so more to that, that story? Like, you, is, right. is that it? <laughs> we're going to, we're going to rank him to match cause he's a good guy. Despite, yeah. you know, like, like, come on. So yeah, I don't know, man. I, I don't know where we're going to end up with this thing. I think it's an exciting time though. Cause as, as terrible as it is right now, like having having this much opportunity to change is good and just the fact that we could like we could get aos to come out and say something about it that's a big step i mean we should all i mean we should hopefully be proud of that and use the momentum going forward to change things for real what do you guys think about this i'm going to slightly change the topic but um it'll still be a little related but you know there's also a bias in orthopedics against um against research and presentations done by people overseas, you know, in foreign countries. And well, we've talked a little bit about this before. Um, so I've, I've recently heard a story. There are some, some people were planning this scientific meeting and without going into too many details, there was talk about not inviting too many of this kind of a person or too many of that kind of a person. Yeah. You know, just, what do you guys think about shut down. <laughs> Yeah, in a sense, you know. So again, with systemic racism, there is a thought that you have to protect your own interests. And in the minds of individuals that believe in the system, there's a finite amount of resources. So there is a certain point where I guess being a token no longer becomes a token. So, you know, I would say for many residency programs, I think if you have more than two black people in a residency program, then it becomes, oh, maybe there's too many. We don't want this program to yeah. have too many African-Americans or Asians or, you know, Indians or whoever. Or women. And, or women, you know, there, there are certain quotas that are acceptable um, depending on, you know, the program or which field you're in. So, you know, with all of the rhetoric that's been going on in politics, I think that sentiment has started to come more to the forefront, where now people are voicing their opinions and are now concocting ways to try to slow down the acceptance of, you know, minority or people that are just not mainstream um, for different entities. You know, so maybe corporate America has decided, okay, we're going to tie, you know, switch the tide the other direction now maybe we've done too much maybe there's this thing called you know, reverse affirmative action now that it's just getting too much and we got to protect our own interests so i think that is what's happening um when these sentiments and these statements are being made about you know let's not take in so many foreign grads let's not take in so many you know women let's not take in so many minorities in these workplaces. So again, it all you know, stems from the same issue of systemic racism and protecting one's interests. But what do you all think? So uh, as far as the research stuff goes, I think there's two points to that. One, I think the reason, at least the reason that a lot of people say they don't trust research from, you know, just for example, like a lot of the Japanese or Chinese research or the Indian journals, there's a lot of Indian journals, man. I don't know what they're, they got like factories of research going on over there, but no one trusts it because I think one, you can't validate their research methods. And there's a lot of distrust as to the validity of their process. I think it's not, you know, we have strict IRBs here, uh, you know, pretty, pretty, I mean, somewhat straight, I guess it depends where you are, but, um, I think a lot of people are quick to dismiss international research just because they can't trust the process that goes behind it. Um, but I also think that a lot of those people need to look at our research. I mean, just, just this week, Lancet retracted that huge hydrochlorothiazide 
study, right? I mean, there was like a bunch of questions going on about that. And Lancet's like one of the biggest journals in the world. So it's not like that stuff doesn't happen here in the U.S. You got to take everything with a grain of salt and you have to you know, really delve into it. And if you're just reading abstracts for the research, then you're not, you know, you're not getting the full story usually. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's funny. Orthopedic research in general just really, really sucks. Like it's not, it's even our level one studies. If you look at a medicine study, an internal medicine study, testing a new drug for hypertension, a really well done study, they have tens of thousands of patients enrolled, double blinded, randomized. You know, they, they are super meticulous and that's, that's, pretty quality evidence. And then you look at our level one studies where you have prospective randomized control, blah, blah, blah. We have an N of like 15, you know, it's like a single surgeon. So how applicable are his results to, you know, general surgeon, to surgeons everywhere? The external validity is just not very high, uh, even in our best studies. Um, so, and then with these foreign studies that come out, I think if we were to carry biases and not trust them because they're done elsewhere, well, man, our, our research here kind of sucks too. Like I, things that are published in the top journals are just retrospective reviews and there's so much subjectivity. There's so much, you know, there's such a difference in surgical technique between surgeons that most of it's not applicable at all, hardly. So, you know, I do think those biases exist where we don't trust Certain, you know, research done in other countries, especially if we don't understand the culture, we don't understand the research culture. And then if you, know, if you look at the author names, if you read a lot of these Korean studies, you have a lot of people with the last name Park and a lot of people with the last name Lee, and we don't know, we you can't differentiate these people. <laughs> and there, it's not like here, if there's a study by, um, by Code CA, for instance, or Bob Anderson, we, oh, Anderson, RB, oh, we all, oh, yeah, we know he is like, oh, this is going to be a good study. You know, automatically, we think it's going to be a high quality study because of who wrote it. You know, we read a study done in Korea by, you know, some, some Dr. Park. We don't know if he's a fellow. We don't know if he's the biggest orthopedic surgeon in Korea. You know, we have no idea who he is really. So, so there's definitely biases there. And, you know, not all of it's, not all of it can really be helped. And I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not going to be too down on it. I'm just saying that they, these biases do exist and it's unfortunate for these people in international countries who are trying to contribute to the scientific community to have the research overlooked. How, how often, how many times this year, just this year alone in fellowship, have you presented an international research article? I've presented a few you of know, them. Uh, you yeah, because our, yeah, because Footnickel International is the predominant publication for us and you know I would say probably a 30% at least if not more of the studies that are published out of their international studies and you know I think again you all kind of spoke about the lack of trust for maybe international research but honestly a lot of the innovations that we are utilizing in America come from overseas like we're very slow to change here in the states mm -hmm. when it comes to medical advancement, Definitely. whereas like they're, they tend to push the envelope, they're more cutting edge and they're the ones that have the preliminary data. So it's funny that we, at one, at one token, try to negate or not give them, you know, the proper respect for their research, but then at the same time, we go and take their ideas and we take their techniques and we utilize them and then we publish the same studies. And now it's validated because it came out of America. So I find that to be interesting. That's a great point. There's been multiple times I've tried to write a paper and I do a medical search and some someone's already written like a case study on it in like three patients in a really, really obscure journal I haven't heard about that is probably an international journal. And um, here we are thinking we're doing something new and reinventing the wheel. Um, but someone's kind of already done it. It's, it's kind of interesting just to think about. Yeah, no, I think we, we just live in a bubble here in the States. You know, I think our perception of ourselves is that we are very aware of the world and the things around us, but we are really not. You know, we 
or oftentimes ignorance of things, including like the prominent researchers that are overseas, whereas they know us, you know, they know people from other countries, but we're still focusing on, you know, the research done in our place that we kind of forget about the important advancements that are going on elsewhere. So I think a lot of that has to do with our FDA too. I think our FDA makes it tough to to try new things like because a lot of that stuff isn't really regulated, especially in Europe. Europe is it's a lot easier to try new devices and new medications, but FDA slows things down here. But I mean, we could we could spend like hours talking about FDA reform. Honestly, I don't know enough about the FDA to talk about that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I know the sports. Sports. I can think of. I mean, Chica, you know this too, but. Um, yeah. like Europe, like France for shoulder stuff, right? The the French and the shoulder stuff, we definitely, we usually accept anything that Jill Walsh gives us or Pascal below, like with their shoulder arthroplasty or ladder J stuff. Like that's a given. Uh, I think the Japanese, as far as SCR and maybe some baseball studies, um, outside of that, that's probably it that I can think of off the top of my head. So one of the cool things about having Chike on this, on this podcast, uh, I thought is that he's one of the few, there, there's more and more of them, but he's one of the few guys who are doing dual fellowships in, in different specialties, subspecialties. So he did a sports fellowship last year and this year he's with me doing the down and dirty uh, foot and ankle fellowship. So Chike, just right off the bat, let me ask you, how much do you what's love a, toes? Was that what's a cool, no, what's a cooler? What is a cooler specialty? <laughs> what is that? You know, be honest. Be honest. I really do. He's not listening. Um, but look, I like foot and ankle. Um, you know, from an innovation standpoint, you know, I so I can tell you kind of why I decided to do two fellowships. Um, you know, very early on in my training, um, at my institution, I was able to, you know, work um, with a surgeon that's actually down here at Duke now, Dr. Amendola, and he was dual fellowship trained. And, you know, you know, from the first week on, I looked at his practice and I said, you know what, you know, I like the variety of his practice. I like what he does. I like the way he thinks surgically. I like his ability to be versatile in the skill set. So for me, I then inquired as to what would be the best path, you know, would it be something that I just do sports, would I do foot and ankle, um, should I go into two fellowships? So, you know, for me, I felt that I wanted to actually have two fellowships under my belt. Um, you know, I wanted to have you know, the credentials to be able to do, you know, both those specialties. So I did put, um, I did sports medicine first and, you know, but, you know, sports medicine is actually one of those you know, skill sets that, you know, as you all know, in training, you know, it's something that we probably get the least exposure um, just because a lot of it's arthroscopy, you know, surgeons are very quick um, to take over cases, you know, depending on how many they have booked during the day. So, you know, although you know how to do basic um, arthroscopy, at least for me, I felt that having a fellowship in that would allow me to do more of the complex cases. Um, and, you know, I've always enjoyed sports growing up. You know, I played basketball, ran track. You know, I felt like I still wanted to continue to have some, you know, presence in the sports medicine field. But then from a foot and ankle standpoint, I felt that during my training at my institution that the research that was being done in foot and ankle was phenomenal. I think it's a younger field, you know, because initially sports medicine and foot and ankle were the same fellowship before they split apart. So the foot and ankle actually got into a good bit of research at my institution. And, you know, I wanted to also keep those skills, you know, the research skills, the innovation, you know, the technology, the medical device, all of these things that I saw being utilized in my uh, training institution. So, you know, I spoke to, you know, a few of the sports guys, I spoke to a few of the foot and ankle guys in my institution, 
And, you know, some people said why don't you just pick one, whereas some others were, you know, more supportive and, you know, said, you know, if this is something you want to do, then, you know, you should go for it. So, you know, I made that decision for myself, and I'm very happy with it. Um, I think, for me, the benefits are, you know, number one, when you're going into your job search and you're looking for jobs, I think for sports medicine, it's difficult to find a true sports medicine practice right out the gate. I think Very most people come out as generalists. So you're doing, you know, total knees, maybe people doing total hips, you know, you're doing fracture work, even, you know, hand stuff, just a radius, maybe even a couple tunnels, just anything to kind of um, get your business going. Whereas for foot and ankle, you know, it's an underrepresented, um, especially in orthopedics, there's a lot of business out there from a foot and ankle standpoint. And, you know, there's a huge need among employees. So, you know, when I was interviewing, I actually found it easier to find, you know, solely foot and ankle positions. But then because I still wanted to do sports and they keep the skills that that train, you know, they allowed leeway because they knew I was coming in and I would bring a whole new revenue source, you know, a new referral pattern for them to put an ankle that they would say, hey, you know, we'll let you do some sports medicine, you know, you know, maybe the deal is, you know, you do lower extremity sports and then if you have guys that are doing upper extremity sports, then they kind of keep their practice intact. So, you know, I think it's a marketing thing and, I, and for me, felt like it worked nicely. Um, and then, you know, I think it just depends on, you know, for me, I went to more of a hospital-based system, but I think in academics, you can find those jobs also that, you know, have the need for both foot and ankle sports. So, and I've been happy with my decision. Um, you know, some of the skills I learned in sports medicine, I've, you know, transferred over to foot and ankle. And then, you know, as I develop my practice, you know, I hope that these things kind of, you know, gel the way I want to. So, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot, there's a trend towards doing dual fellowships now that's growing. Like before, at least when I was in med school and even starting residency, I think it was just like, like tumor and oncology or like a dual fellowship kind of, but now you're seeing foot sports and sport, foot and sports, sorry, getting mixed up, foot and sports, you're seeing like, Sports and PD. A lot of people are doing sports and PD too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's growing now. And you're right. I think it's, it'll be a lot easier to find a job, uh, you know, having that dual training and feeling a niche somewhere. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I've definitely seen that trend with PD, either PD sports or PD spine, you know, PD something. And there's there's long been kind of a running joke within orthopedics that, you know, if you're not good operating, do pediatric. You know, you all heard that joke. Just because kids heal heal so well. That's a microaggression, Jay. Well, I know it's, it's actually <laughs> macroaggression, but you know, honestly, I I think pediatrics is really tough if you want to be good at it because there's it's there's there's so many different things to do. There's spine, there's sports, there's foot deformity, um, there's trauma, there's it's basically a whole new specialty almost. It's, you know, it's still bones, so it's still great, but it's just, uh, it's so different. And I think it's, it's a really interesting trend to be dual trained in pediatrics and something. And I think it's a, it's a good trend too. Um, I think hopefully at least the PD sports surgeons will be better than if they had just done a PD fellowship uh, eventually. And same for the PD spine surgeons as well. So I think it's an interesting trend. I myself probably don't have the patience to, yeah. To do another fellowship, or the wallet. But, I don't have know, the wallet for or it. The wallet, <laughs> but um, that's that's really cool that GK is doing that. What uh, what fellowship's been harder? Yeah, so both are very different. I think you know because I did my uh, sports at Wisconsin. Um, you know, from sports medicine standpoint, it was a significant time commitment uh, because mm-hmm. of the sports coverage. Uh, especially during the football and basketball season. So, you know, I rarely had a weekend off until the spring. Um, so, which I felt like was a great experience. It's part of the game. It's, you know, you're learning how to, you know, time management through all of this and cover, you know, if you decide to do uh, 
cover high school or collegiate you know, athletics, you need to have that skill set. You know, so for sports medicine, you know, we would have, you know, athletic clinics, um, say, 6.15 in the morning, and then you would have your normal clinical OR around 7.30. So you'd have that. Then you would also have, you know, clinics for, like a walking clinic for other athletes, you know, in the afternoon or evening around 5.30 or 6. So, you know, especially when you're at a place where there's a big sporting presence um, or a big sports team, you're going to be, you know, living it 24-7. You know, you talk to different fellows or, you know, are at programs where they have professional teams. That's probably even more of a time commitment. They're having to, you know, travel to all the away games and then come back and operate the next, you know, the next day. And, you know, I felt like that training was invaluable. Um, again, I think managing the athlete during in-season is so much different than how you would manage people, you know, out of season or the recreation athletes. So I think some of that has changed my thought process um, for some of the even foot and ankle things. So even like foot and ankle arthroscopy, you know, tendon reconstructions, you know, Sports guys tend to want to be more aggressive with the rehabilitation to try to get people out sooner. So, you know, if you have a patient that wants to return to running or high-level activity and you're confident in your, you know, your physical therapist, then you're more willing to push the envelope more so and your patients really enjoy that. So I think that's something that sports has given me the ability to have some more leeway on. For foot and ankle, um, you know, our fellowship, you know, we operate a lot, um, much like my sports medicine fellowship. You know, we see, you know, a ton of complex cases. We do the most total ankles out of any fellowship in the country by far. And you know, not only primary total ankles revision, complex, you know, midfoot surgeries. We get it all, and we get a lot of autonomy um, early on. But on the same token, I don't have the same, you know, weekend responsibility. Um, from a team coverage, so that's been a little bit easier, but we do a lot of research here at Duke also, so because we have so many staff and we have such a great research system, you know, we're, you know, doing a lot of research on the weekend, you know, writing papers, you know, editing book chapters, that sort of thing, so I think, you know, the time commitment, when you kind of add it all up, it's pretty similar, um, it's just kind of a difference in what you're doing with your time. Yeah. yeah. Did you, um, as far as sports coverage goes, have you found a job yet? Do you know what you're doing next year? Yeah, yeah. So I'll be working outside of Chicago. I'm kind of in the West Suburbs. Yeah. Nice, nice. Um, one thing I found, I haven't found my job yet, but one thing I did find kind of while looking is that having that sports coverage on your CV is pretty nice. Like people, yeah. people like that. They like to be able to brand you and market you. And nobody really tells you that in residency. <laughs> Like or when you're applying for a sports fellowship, I mean, at least I didn't really get told it. Um, you kind of just talked about the time commitment that comes with it, but having that stuff on your CV is nice. Uh, it definitely helps going forward. Because once you get out of, out in practice, a lot of it's just marketing and branding. It's like to get your patient population up. So I don't know. I, I think that's going to be pretty helpful. Um, yeah, I don't know, Jay. You were going to say something. Yeah, I don't remember what I was going to say. That's okay. <laughs> Because uh, you started talking about branding and marketing, and that got me wondering, like, how how important is it for us coming out to have our own personal websites, like some of our attending, one of our attendings does, and you know, should we ha should I have a, a jchen, you know, dot com foot surgeon, you know, backslash second toe, whatever, you know, like <laughs> how is that is that something nowadays that we should we should all be trying to do, or is that you know not not necessary and I guess it depends on what, what our goals are, right, for our career. I think my, I mean, my answer is... I'm just trying to pass boards. Huh? I'm just trying to pass boards for the first few years. Yeah, I, I, I think, I don't know, I think it's becoming more and more necessary. Like, patients are, are more willing to Google you, and they want to know who's cutting their skin open. They want to know what your reviews are. Are you five stars? Are you four and a half stars? Like, that, that stuff's going to make a difference. And maybe if you're going to like, a, you know, if you're if you're in an academic center or a hospital employed position where you're going to get fed patients, 
you know, maybe it's not that big of a deal. If you're in private practice, like that stuff makes all the difference. Like that's, that's the difference between, you know, like knockoff hibachi and Benihana's like you, that, that's it. You got, you got to market yourself. Speaking of boards, there's apparently for the, the oral boards this year, they're changing it up due to COVID. So what I know about it basically is you collect your cases and you send them off and I think you send x-rays too. And, and then apparently if, if they review your cases, they can just kind of let you pass without an actual examination portion. But if they feel like there's something they want to ask you about or, or go deeper into, um, then they'll ask you to go in on a Zoom examination. Is that what you understand? Yeah, I, I think that's mostly true. I'm checking one thing right now. I thought it was exactly what you said. Um, but then I heard, I'll check it right here. I heard that, that uh, the Zoom virtual visit, and I think it's true looking at what their, their website says, it's not your cases. They, they oh, pick, really? Like, yeah, they pick 12 like random like stock cases for you. To oh go my through. goodness. That, no, that's, I mean, that's a game that's changer. Tough. Yeah, I that, thought it was. Tough. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I thought that it was what you said, but they, they'll just go more in depth on the cases you did. But uh, if, it, if it's random cases, you have to know everything about everything. I mean, you, you have to like know your written board stuff all over again. You have to, yeah, you have to know everything. Instead of just focusing on your 12 cases, you got to focus on every possible scenario within your subspecialty it sounds like huh like i'm glad i'm not yeah, taking it this year the same cases across the board you know are they going to be the same 12 cases for sports medicine you know board examinees or are they going to have this collection of like 50 cases and then they're going to randomly collect 12 so that you know obviously people aren't back talking about it you know later on um yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think other professions do it that way where they actually give surprise cases to the examinee and then they have to, on the spot, be able to, you know, talk their way through the management and make good real life decisions. So I don't know. Um, I think maybe it's easier on the front end as far as having to follow up your patients. You know, maybe there's not that requirement. I don't, I don't know what they're going to do without that part of it, you know, and maybe you can focus on kind of practicing, but, you know, this does change the game, you know, like you said, Asad, as far as having to just know everything, being up yeah. to date um, with all the various areas in your subspecialty. So, yeah, I don't know what to make of it. We'll see what the, this next year's um, board exam will show. So they, you know, I, I looked at their website just now. It's it's still unclear about that, but it, they do make it sound like it's going to be standard cases that they're going to have to present to you and you talk your way through. At least that's the way they make it see. Uh, I'm, I might be wrong on that. So whoever's listening, all 20 to 25 of you, take it with a grain of salt. Um, 25,000. <laughs> but with that said, what would you rather do? Would you rather do it the old way or the new way if you had the choice? which I don't think we'll have the choice. I think they already put a statement saying that we're going to go back to the old way. Um, but we'll, I'm, I'm, I'm good with the old way. <laughs> like with this, with this new way, I feel like you're either really fortunate. You're great or you're, you're you. screwed. Yeah. Or you're just in, you know, or maybe we'll see what the pass rate is. Maybe it'll be like step two CS where like, you know, was the, what's the pass rate for that? It was absurdly high. It's high for, but, but the pass rate for the oral boards anyways are really high. Like they're, they're usually uh, 95% plus that's true yeah that's a good point so i don't know yeah um, i don't think it matters i mean i think you're testing the same concepts and you know the same decision trees you know and then also you don't have to you know deal with explaining your complications which i think yeah. is a huge part of the oil boards now so maybe that takes away a lot of the anxiety from your practice and preparing for the board so I think with the new way, know. your documentation would definitely be have to be on point. Like if, if you're if you're good at documenting, I would take the new way. Like 
I would just document everything, every little thing about the case and just hope that everything goes okay and pass. And I don't have to, you know, do an actual review of it. Uh, I don't think, I, like I said, I don't think we'll get that choice though. I, I think they're going to go back to the old. Right. Too much so there used to be a strategy where, you know, you kind of over report complications kind of to not to hide your actual bad complications, but just to, you know, if you put a, you know, if you put stiff and post your stiffness, which probably most patients have some degree of, you know, if you, if you put that on and that gets picked, that's pretty easy to defend. So I wonder for this, would it be beneficial to do that or would it be detrimental? Cause if you put a bunch of that stuff, that'll, increase your total number of complications they may flag you for an actual examination. Yeah, I wonder. It's, it's just like getting minorities into leadership. You have to have just the right amount. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good place to end this, man. All right, yeah. Chike, thank you, man. I appreciate you coming yeah, on. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate the time. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, no, good, good right. luck. Thank you for inviting me to the platform. Yeah. Of course, man. All right, See you in the all. morning. Arthrex Lab. <laughs> and that'll do it for this week. Uh, again, new podcast name, Orthotalk Pod. You can uh, find us on our website, www.orthotalkpod.com. Uh, all our contact info is up there. You can see us on Twitter at Orthotalk Pod. Uh, if you like the podcast, give us a five star review, leave a comment, tell us why on your favorite podcasting platform. If you're watching on YouTube, uh, like the video and subscribe. Uh, and if you don't, if, if you think this sucks or we could do something better. Shoot us an email and let us know why. We're here for the people. So um, thanks to Dr. Chike Aiko. Uh, next week, we should have a really good podcast, assuming things line up well. Uh, and, you know, keep listening. Keep giving us your comments. And uh, we appreciate all of you. Stay safe. And uh, thank you for the opportunity.